0: It is amazing. It's wonderful to be with you guys. You should know a couple of things. First off, Caleb speaks very highly of you. And you should know that we also speak very highly of you, meaning the Mariners Movement. Uh, I've been here a couple of times and I've been impressed and marked by the same thing over and over again each time that I've come here. Number one, that this is a community. Hey guys, you guys are really close. How's it going down there? <laughs> We can high-five and do stuff, Jordan. Um, this is a community that worships the Lord with just unabandoned, with passion, and, and with just a sense of, of we really have a desire for God to move in our midst, in this meeting, in this gathering. I love the way this community worships. I also love the way that you welcome others into the community. Um, the 9 o'clock service, my, my comment was, is you know, sometimes it could be hard to step into a place where you've never been before, and it could be a little interesting to to speak but it's so easy because you guys make it that way by the way that you've created a real environment a sense of community and often that's an overused word but it's a tangible thing that happens here and I know that Caleb has done just an amazing job of laying that foundation and that you guys you guys are embodying that and you're, you're going for that and I just good good on you guys it's a great thing to walk into you should know that it's special that it doesn't always happen this way, so it's fantastic to be with you. As Jarish mentioned, uh, we had an opportunity to to go with some of our staff team to Africa, and he talked about us being part of a special group. You might have heard of the Wolf Pack before, right? We formed what was known as on the group, and it continues to be known as the Goat Pack. I don't know where that started, but we have a little secret greeting. It goes like this, when we see each other in the hallway. We do one of these. That's a a goat noise. I know that was a little jarring for Sunday morning. It's kind of our secret thing. And we had some great moments of bonding and, and seeing God work and doing incredible things. We actually had an opportunity to go out and do a safari as part of our debrief to just Uh, think about some of the things that God had been speaking to us and where he'd been moving and where he'd been working. And it was an amazing experience. Jairus and I had the opportunity to embrace and come close as we saw a herd of about 50 elephants come right in front of our Jeep, within three feet of our Jeep, which I'm told that doesn't always happen. And I'm also told that that was kind of a dangerous thing because elephants versus a Jeep, an elephant wins every time. So if you're wondering that. There was one moment where the leader of the elephant pack, it must have been because she was the largest elephant of them all, she looked at our tram, and she kind of dug her heels in. Do they call them heels and elephants? I don't know. Maybe they don't. But her feet, her elephant feet, if that's what they're called. She dug them in a little bit, and she looked at our tram, and our Jeep, and she actually drew a line in the sand with her trunk as to say, don't come any closer. Because <laughs> if you do, Jeep versus elephant, elephant wins. And I actually got the thing on video. She um, picked up some rocks, and then she threw them up in the air, and then she, she left. And it was, it was a terrifying moment. It was also an exciting moment. I had some anticipation, some excitement of that and hoping to see something like that. But when I saw it, it was also very, very terrifying. I had a similar experience not two weeks ago. This is more like, wow, I'm getting old. Over 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Any uh, Bay Area folks in the house? A couple, all right, all right. So that means you're Giants fans, right? Okay, no, not so much. All right, well we'll have response time for that later, maybe for all of us, because I believe that God's people are Giants peoples, Giants fans. That's dangerous. I know I'm in Southern California. I've made that mistake before. Um, But in the Bay Area, we don't have Great America. We don't have Knotts. We don't have Magic Mountain. We have a park called Great America, which I think is still in existence. Yeah, there you go, my Great America folks. And 20-plus years ago, there was this ride called The Edge, Now, the Edge is one of those elevator tower drop rides before there was the Tower of Terror and probably before there was proper hydraulics. This is a picture of that ride. It's a bit rickety for sure. Um, But I remember from a young age always wanting to go on this ride. And and one day in particular, we were at the park all day with my family, and I remember we were getting ready to leave and head outside of the park. We had a great day, and I told my dad, wait, wait, I want to go on the Edge. I want to do that ride. I was probably about seven or eight at the time, and... You know, that's the ride that all the cool kids were going on, all the teenagers, and I wanted to, to prove myself that I was tough enough. So he said, are you sure? Can you, you really want to do that? I said, yeah, Dad, I don't want to do that. I'm kind of bored with the Smurf ride and the, and the log cabin stuff. Let's, let's, go for a, let's go for the edge. I said, all right you know, it's a long line. It's an hour and a half. I said, oh, I I was a kid. I didn't have any concept of time. I was like, let's just just go for it. So we do that. We we wait in line, and I'll never forget just some of the images and even some of the things that I heard as we got closer and closer to the front of this elevator shaft broken, just thing you don't want to go in. The screams began to get louder and louder and louder, and so the anticipation is building, but also there's a sense of fear that's beginning to build, and, you know, I'm seven. I'm eight years old. I'm I'm trying to be macho with my dad, so I don't want to show that, but I think he could tell that something's going on, and he kind of looks at me, are you okay? So I'm like, yeah, dad, let's, let's do the edge, let's go for it. it finally got to that point where there we are, we're next. What a great feeling to be next, right? You know, when you've waited for two hours for Radiator Springs, and you're, you're finally next. We're next, there's our moment. The gate's open. This broken down elevator shaft is there. I had my pennies in hand, because on this ride, the cool thing to do was to sit down, Put pennies on your lap and see how they fly in the air. So I had my pennies. I was ready to go. The gates open. And what do I do? I don't say a word. I actually just walk straight through with my head down, and I don't sit down on the ride. Because the screams and the terror and everything else it built up in my mind that this is a terrifying thing, <laughs> that I thought I wanted to do this. I thought this was going to be be fun, but actually in the moment, let's just walk right through. I remember my dad asking me, are you okay? And I was like, "Well." Didn't want to do it. It's a little little scary, a little terrifying. And he said something to the effect of, well, thanks for the hour and a half, right? (laughs) And now my daughter does that to me, which is awesome. But there are moments, aren't there, in our own lives. There are moments where, where God calls us to things. Moments of risk. Moments of surrender. Moments where he says, hey, I have this thing for you. And I want you to enter into it. And there's moments of decision that we have to decide of, of are we gonna pursue that? Are we gonna follow that? Or will we let fear grip us and hold back from entering into what God has for us? As you know, we've been in this Bible series and throughout Scripture, this this is a major theme about God calling people to great risk, of surrendering and following Him. We see it seen it in Moses and Daniel and David, and I know. You guys, we talked about Jesus last week and him entering the wilderness and beginning his mission on earth. It's a major theme throughout scriptures, and it is because it's also a major theme for our lives, the God who calls, the God who beckons, the God who brings us into moments of risk and surrender to follow him. What I'd love to do today is just camp here in in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 8, there's a Great passage here that that I just love. It's kind of been an anchor passage for for my life. I want to read this to you guys, and we're going to unpack it throughout the rest of our time. Um, But as we do that, we're going to kind of look at two different sort of groups, sects of people here who are called into great risk and just look a little bit about their response. So Matthew 8, starting at verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see to it that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift to Moses that he commanded as a testimony to them. Lots of things going on this passage. There's a few things that stick out for me. First, verse 1 says, When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. In my investigative mind, I have to ask the question, Okay, he says he came down from the mountainside. So what was going on on the other side of the mountain? Where do these crowds come from? We're, we're thrown in the middle of this context that actually has been laid out previously in, in the chapters before. If you turn a few pages prior in Matthew's Gospel, we see that Jesus has been in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. His most amazing recorded message that we have on record. We see him talking about what it means to be into the kingdom of heaven. He's saying some very revolutionary, very jarring things to this crowd. Phrases like, blessed are the poor. What? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the crushed in spirit. Are you kidding me? We're a people under Roman oppression, And it's all about strength. And we have to overcome that. And you're saying actually blessed are the poor, the meek, the crushed in spirit? Jesus would often take this route from from Galilee to Jerusalem as he's going back and forth and he's doing his ministry. And he's at a point where where word has started to get out a little bit about him. He's performed some miracles. There's this rumor about, actually, this guy is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one we've been waiting for. And each time as he travels back and forth, the crowds begin to grow as he's journeying between Galilee and Jerusalem. So here we have this, this moment, this context... Of In the middle of those journeys, and leading actually up a literal mountainside, the Sermon on the Mount, up a hill, declaring what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. And what do they encounter when they begin to come down this mountain? A man with leprosy, a man with leprosy who kneels and says, Lord, if you are willing, will you make me clean? And we probably understand a little bit about leprosy. It's something that we, we still have today. It's really a horrendous disease. It's a disease that basically eats the flesh alive. It's something that you can see. Skin falling off, boils, it's festering. It's it's a nasty thing, pus involved. That's kind of gross, right? The 9 o'clock looked at me like, thanks a lot, I just ate my breakfast. And you're looking at me like, thanks a lot, I'm just about to go to Freebirds and have a burrito. Let's Let's take it easy on that. But it's something that you could see. It's also something that you could smell because of the effect that it had on the skin. So physically, it's just a horrible, a horrible disease. But there's also other implications that move beyond just the physical. There's a spiritual implications of a person who is now declared unclean. That means, hey, you can't go to the temple. You can't worship. You can't be in the community. And socially, you're an outcast. And actually what they would do with lepers, many of them, is they would put them away on on islands as outcasts, because they didn't belong, because they were dirty, because they were broken people, because they were people that we couldn't be around, because we can't be around unclean things, because that jeopardizes our own cleanliness. And we have this moment where the leper, he comes out of hiding. I have the picture, and this is is me in between the margins, but I have the, the picture of him maybe behind a bush and seeing the crowds and seeing Jesus, whom he would have heard about, whom he would have understood that this guy actually performs miracles. And he understood that about him, so he was willing to risk everything, to come out into public, to come out from hiding, to bow in front of the Messiah King and ask him, Lord, are you willing? Will you make me clean? Which is an amazing question. Amazing boldness in that question, to even ask, to even dare to dream of, God, are you willing, if you are willing? You know, I believe that he perhaps knew that he was willing. I believe that he probably knew that he was able because he had heard of him doing things like that. But I have to wonder if he thought, is this gonna be just like everything else? Every other time when I've been out in public, when I've asked for help, where people cast me away, where they remove me, where I'm not allowed to even be with my family anymore, where I can't worship, where I can't work. But he asks this daring question. Are you willing? Will you accept me? Will you make me clean? And Jesus' response to this desperate and humble act is mind-blowing, in my opinion. Because Jesus is a multitasker. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever noticed that about him when he performs miracles and when he does things. There's much more going on than just the act of healing this man. Let's consider how... He heals the man. He reaches out, and what does he do? He touches the man. I don't think we could fully understand how how powerful that actually is. That the Messiah, the spotless lamb, the clean one, enters in into this man's brokenness, his decay, his pain, his isolation, and he touches him. As to say, I see you. I'm concerned for you. I'm compassionate for you. And I will enter into actually the brokenness, the hurt, the pain, and make you whole. You know, he could have very easily, like he told some other folks, to hey, there's a pond over there, why don't you go like do seven dips, do a couple laps, and, and then come back out and then and you'll be healed because we want a you know safety of the situation You're unclean after all. Or like he did with the blind person when he, what did he do? He spit in the mud, right? And he made a little mud patty out of it, and he put it on the guy's eyes. Or sometimes he 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 even healed people through proxy. You know, will tell the tell the official of the, of the Roman official's daughter. Tell have the servant relay these words that he, he will be clean, and he did that from from a distance. But he didn't choose to do that here in this moment. He chose to actually enter in to the brokenness, enter in into the pain, and in the moment, this lawgiver becomes a lawbreaker, not to abolish the law, but to become the fulfillment, the physical embodiment of the law. Which for me is just incredible and it speaks volumes, I think, even for us. Because for us, many of us, for, for me at times as well, there, there's moments of desperation where we feel hopeless, where we feel rejected, where we feel just beaten down. And, and, and even those who would call themselves our friends, are, 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 they're not there with us. Maybe it's a, it's a physical illness, maybe it's something emotionally going on, spiritually going on. And this gives us a great model of, are we willing to even dream, to dare to ask, to ask that question, God, are you willing? And I believe his answer for him and his answer for us is, yes, I am willing. That the Son of God came not to act in some sort of removed posture of authority, but in a posture that dwells among his people, that enters into brokenness, so that Life and hope can be restored. So here we have this leper. He experiences whole healing. Scripture says that immediately he was healed. I love that. I happen to believe that God still does that. (laughs) That God still heals. That God still wants to do that for, for us, for some of us even today in this space. Physical healing. But also spiritual, social restoration is what he gives this man. A man who couldn't be with his family. A man who perhaps couldn't be a father again, who maybe was even cast off into an island or, or just was not allowed to be a part of society. He tells him, go show Moses what happened and proclaim the law of Moses to, to do them in the temple what happened so that you can be restored socially and spiritually, physically, in every such way. So this man comes with great risk, and he receives a great restoration. A great restoration. And we could actually easily stop there at verse 3. It's, you know, it's a quarter to 12. That might be a good place to stop and get out early, and that's fantastic, okay? Um, we're not, so sorry. am <laughs> thinking, oh, that'd be cool. All right. Um, but there's a turn. There's a twist here, as there often is with the stories of Jesus, that are not just stories, by the way. These are just fictional stories. This actually happened. That this matters for us today. There's a turn here in verse 4 when he says this. Jesus says, See to it that you don't tell anyone, but show yourself to the priest. Offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. That first phrase, See to it that you don't tell anyone. Hold on a second. Remember how this started. Down a mountainside, large crowds followed after Jesus. When it says followed, actually, usually in Matthew's gospel in particular, because it's a book that's written to say, hey, here's how to become a disciple, mainly to a Jewish audience. You want to enter in the faith. Matthew's name actually means disciple. It's genius, so it's good branding. Here's how to become a disciple. and This is how to follow Jesus. The verb that he uses here for follow is different than the one that he uses in other parts of his, of his gospel. <clears throat> followed is not this committed all in, but it's more of a... Casual curiosity, and not so much of a captive, committed crowd. So what's the implication here? The implication is is this group that, that comes up the mountain, that is hearing wonderful, amazing things about the kingdom, that is growing in curiosity, that wants to know more about who Jesus is, but they're not all the way quite in yet. They come down the mountain, and they encounter a physical representation, a moment to actually put into practice everything that they had just heard. Talk about somebody who's poor, who's crushed in spirit, who's meek. I mean, that is the total M.O. of the leper. That is that person. Very intentionally placed passage here. Very intentionally placed thing that Jesus is doing. See, because it's one thing to, act, to go up with him to be curious about him, to have experiences about him. And it's another thing to go down into the valley in our lives, in our communities, where we live, where we work, and to put into practice all that we've seen and all that we've received. And the crowd in this moment, they're nowhere to be found. That's why he could say, don't tell anyone. Because remember, the leper, they could see it. They could smell it. Another thing, they could hear it. If you were a leper and you walked into a public square where there was people around, you had to declare your presence. And the way that you would do that is you would say, unclean, unclean. And it's barely likely because Luke's gospel tells us that this man was full of leprosy. Luke was a doctor, so he uses that extra kind of description for us, which is great. He says this man was full of leprosy. We're not talking about just a couple of blemishes, Full on leprosy. And at that point, full on leprosy would even affect your throat because your skin would begin to deteriorate and the larynx, and it would have affected his his voice. So this man comes out. They see him. They smell him. They certainly hear him. And probably a distorted kind of voice declare his presence as unclean, unclean. And in that moment, they scatter. And they scatter because there's a great risk involved with being around a leper. And I get it. I I like comfort. You know, I've been in Orange County for about ten years, and I happen to think that OC doesn't stand for Orange County. I think it stands for Optimum Comfort because that's what that's what one of the things that happens here, isn't it? We and that and that's okay. We want lives that are, that are comfortable and, and and safety, especially with family. I have a daughter and and all that, but when, when our comfort kind of trumps following after Jesus and risk and surrender, then I have a problem. Then we have a problem. Because this is exactly the kind of places that Jesus is at work. Places where there's brokenness. Places where we feel like, mm, I don't know if I should hang out with that person. Where else should light go but into darkness? Where else should life go except for in death pain and brokenness? but I get that. I have a hard time with that, like I said, I was in in Kenya and we saw some amazing things, just seeing our church partners and how God is at work there. We also saw some very jarring things of of being out in some of the displaced people movement some of some of the slums and the things how people how people live there and for me like I don't know, would I, would I be comfortable bringing my family? I, I don't know. If God called me to that, I, I, I would go for it. But what I want to suggest for you is it may not be moving abroad and, and doing something like that, but I'm confident of this, that God has called you to risk something more than you're probably comfortable with. That whatever it is that you think it is now, the answer is probably more. And I say that to myself, and you know what it does when I say it to myself? It's a smack in the face to me as well. Because like I said, we're in a culture where we're taught to be comfortable. We're taught to be safe. We're a risk adverse culture. But this gospel and this God that we serve is not risk adverse. He calls his people into those moments. So that we can join in with his redemption. So that we can join in with his work of restoration in the earth. And I believe that the audience, the hearers of this passage, they they would have made an immediate connection. Remember Matthew's gospel again, written mainly to a Jewish audience to say, this is how you follow, this is how you become a disciple. And as they would have read this, as they would have heard about this story, it would have triggered some images in their mind. <clears throat> wow, that sounds actually a lot like Moses. Remember the time when Moses climbed up the mountain, up to Mount Sinai? He received the, the law, the commands of God. He met with God. And then remember what happened when Moses came down to give those laws? to say what had been revealed to him by God's Spirit. He encountered a people of God living in debauchery, worshiping idols, forsaking everything that they had just seen and learned from a God who had rescued them. And the call to them is the same call to us, As we can't just be mountaintop experience people. I was a youth pastor for years. I love youth ministry. And, you know, you do the thing. You go and you do, do the summer camp, and... And kids meet with God and they have incredible, wonderful experiences. And one of the hardest jobs of a youth pastor is how do you foster that throughout the year? That what we experience, what we receive, isn't just goosebumps. It isn't just something that's awesome, but it's something that actually gets lived out and expressed through our lives. The same message for them is the same message for us. Yes, we are mountaintop experience people, but we are also valley people people who God is calling to great risk and surrender, to live out, to embody the salvation that he has given. And I'm convinced that God, he wants to use us, that he wants to use us in his work of healing and redemption. And it's a wonderful thing. And we see this throughout the gospels, particularly through some of the miracles. In in John John 2, Jesus' first miracle, actually, you might be familiar with this. Uh, He attends a wedding. He's at a wedding. And a wedding then is, is, it's a major event because all the towns that are around, they come and, and they participate in the wedding. And some of you might be like me. I'm just waiting for when that, that cake is going to be cut so I can make my exit. So it's you know, just at that point where it's not too rude, but it's okay to leave at that point. Well, you couldn't do it back then because these weddings actually lasted about seven days or sometimes longer. <clears throat> and at these weddings, it was the responsibility of the bride and their family to throw the party And part of that element of throwing that party would be to supply the wine. There had to be enough wine to last for the seven days. You guys are thinking, well, that sounds like an awesome party. Let me sign me up for that. right? Wine in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, throughout scriptures, it's wine, but also very symbolic language. Wine is actually referred to the same same as joy. That wine is equated with joy. So in, in that story in John 2, when the wine runs out, it's akin to them saying, Jesus, the joy has run out. What are we going to do? And he responds to his mother in a way that I would not advise any of you to respond. When his mother asks him to do something. He says, woman. (laughs) Probably never a good way to greet your mom. Pick her answer on the phone. Hey, woman. Probably not something you want to do. But he says, woman, leave me alone for my time has not yet come. But he sees this young couple. And he knows, wine running out. It's very taboo. That means the party is not a success. And that actually means also that your marriage is probably not going to be a success. You would be looked down upon. So he's moved with compassion for this young couple. And then he does something very amazing. He turns to the servant and he says, you fill the jars with water. And Jesus, obviously, he does the miracle. The water turns to wine. But he involves them by saying, you fill the jars with water. Later, in the feeding of the 5,000, there's 5,000 people around. Actually, more than that, because that count was just including men. 5,000 men and then women and children around, and sun begins to set. And disciples turn to Jesus, and, Lord, the people are hungry. We have to feed them. We have to do something. The sun is setting. And do you know what Jesus says to the disciples? You feed them. And obviously, Jesus does the miracle, and they get to participate, and they get to have a part in that but he involves them. And perhaps in one of my favorite miracle passages of the raising of Lazarus, Jesus' dear friend, he had been, he's dead. He has been dead for, for three days. The passage says that he was very, very dead. He was dead indeed to mean that he's, he's like dead, dead. And smells are starting to happen and, and all the other things. And, and, and Mary and Martha are upset with him because Jesus, if you would have been here sooner, then this, this could have been okay. And he shows up on the scene. He calls Lazarus back to life. And then he does something very beautiful. He turns to them and he says, you roll away the stone and you unbind his grave clothes because that's the God that we serve. He does the heavy lifting. He died on the cross. He brings salvation. He brings restoration and redemption. But he desires to use us to embody that, to be involved in his work. To be people who actually bring joy where joy has run out. To bring substance and nourishment to people who are starving. And like Lazarus, to remove the stench of death in our world. That's what it means to follow him. That's what it means to be with him. The question has to be for us, are we willing to join in with that work? Will we risk? Will we enter into that? Or will we scatter? And it's not always easy. It's not, I got it. I'm going to get this down for life and this is going to be easy stuff. But for some of us, I think maybe it's just even a turn of, of our thinking that God is calling you to rest, to surrender. Will you go? Will you follow? Because He wants to involve us in His mission on the earth. And what is that mission? Well, it's never changed. It's the same mission. Jesus actually comes out with this mission statement in Luke 4.18. He says this in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's Jesus' mission. The Father sent him in his power for that mission. And later in John 20, one of my favorite verses and unsettling verses, Jesus says this to his disciples that includes us. In the same way that the Father sent me, so I send you. In the same way, on the same mission, He had the power of the Father with him. Jesus breathes on us the power of the Holy Spirit and says, now go and be about the same mission. Knowing full well that I have conquered death, that I've done the heavy lifting, but I decide to, I desire to use you, to involve you with embodying redemption and salvation on the earth. I don't know about you, but that gets me a little excited. A little terrified, but very excited that Jesus decides to use us, that he chooses to use us. For some of you, maybe that's that, First thing that needs to happen, well, what is my mission? What does my mission look like? Well, this, this is the mission. It's not so much as individuals that we, that we have individual missions, but it's that the mission actually has us. You know, even in, in church, we talk often about mission statements, and that's important, and we have to have embodiments of how our communities live that out. But it's not necessarily that the church has a mission. It's that the mission has a church that the mission has a people, that the mission has never changed, it never will change, and that he invites us, he calls us in to be about what he has already done and continues to do here on earth. love to read you this quote from Evelyn Underhill. She's a great British author. In her book, The Spiritual Life, I think the quote's on your outlines as well. She says this about our participation with, with the work of God on the earth. She says, Some people... Suppose that the spiritual life mainly consists in watching God work. God provides the spectacle. We gaze with reverent appreciation from our comfortable seats. However, our place is not the auditorium, but the stage. Or as the case may be, the field, the workshop, the study, the laboratory. Because we ourselves form part of the creative apparatus of God or at least are meant to form part of the creative apparatus of God. He made us in order to use us. And how does he use us? In the most profitable way, for God's purposes and not ours. The fact is that we're created to to join with the works of God. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been planted, that God wants to involve you, to come alongside you, to be a co-worker, to be a co-laborer in his act of redemption and restoration on the earth. How many of you guys have been watching the Bible series or watched it, right? We're a little late on the on the series. I think it happened a while ago, right? Did anybody watch the Bible series? It's great. I love that. I love anytime Discovery Channel or History Channel has a piece on, on the Bible or something, I'm always watching it. I just think it's interesting to see how our culture interprets things, and I thought they did a great job with the Bible series, actually. But there's a little bit of me that has a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of fear with the Bible series. Because I think that it may have the tendency to actually pull out more of the spectatorship that we often have in church. That we view that as, as entertainment and wow, look at how wonderful that is. And, and look what Jesus did and go and you know look what everybody's doing here at Mariners and the staff and everything. It's great. And, but actually what we've been called into is not a spectator gospel that it's an all-in involvement gospel that God chooses to use us in. So the question, again, is will you risk? Will you follow? Will you join him in what he's done and what he's already doing on the earth? Like I mentioned earlier, we have a four-year-old daughter. She's fantastic. And she loves to help around the house and do things. And and for those of you that are parents, you know often that the help of a four-year-old is not really help at all. (laughs) Particularly when my mom comes into town and she makes her world famous chocolate chip cookies. Just to say about these cookies, she's from Oklahoma. So these are Oklahoma chocolate chip cookies that are full of Crisco and butter and some chocolate chips, and they will change your life. No kidding. I had somebody the other day who I forgot I even shared these cookies with ask me, Is your mom gonna make cookies again? And (laughs) she makes that impression on people. So my daughter loves to make the cookies with her. So what happens, right? The flour comes out, it's put all over the place. And there's a system to it, but the system gets thrown out the window, this window as soon as she's on the stool and she's helping. There's flour all over the place. There's chocolate chips all over the place. It's a mess. And you probably don't want to eat the chocolate chip cookies that my daughter had her hand in, because who knows where her hand was before, you know, touching the flour, if you know what I'm saying. And it's not that my grandma, it's not that we need her help. I mean, actually, we're quite capable of doing that on our own. But she desires to use her, to involve her in that, to model something with that, because it gives her great joy. And because it models what it means to to, to create something. And it's the same way with our Father. Shocking news for you. Shocking news for me. He actually doesn't need us. He's God all by himself. Remember Genesis 1? How did it start? In the beginning, God. And nothing else. He actually doesn't need us. But here's the incredible thing about who he is. He decides to involve us. He chooses to use us. And here's the even scarier thing with that. Not only does he choose to use us and he wants to involve us, it's really the plan A that he has. There is no plan B. It is his plan for how this world will come and see to know who he is, to hear about what he's already done, that there would be a people who embody his mission to express it and to live it out. Remember me talking about the roller coaster that I went on, The Edge, right? I know I've talked about my daughter a couple times. She's in my mind right now because we're going to the circus in about an hour and a half in Anaheim. So pray for me for that. That should be very interesting. I don't know about the whole circus thing. It kind of freaks me out. Um, but she's a bit of a thrill seeker. She kind of just has always had that in there. And she's actually really tall. I'm, I'm pretty tall. It seems like everybody who comes on the stage at Huntington Beach has to be at least 6'5", right? Is that what happens? <laughs> Graham, Elfie, and Caleb's quite, quite tall as well. So she's pretty tall. So from a young age, she uh, was always able to go on the big roller coasters, which always made a problem when we went to Disneyland with other friends because they had uh, you know, similar age kids, but they just were stuck on Dumbo. And she, she was bored with Dumbo. When she was two, she was tall enough to do everything. So she loves the Manahorn, horn which is crazy. Um, and her favorite ride is Splash Mountain. I remember... Our intention was to walk her through the park to that point where Winnie the Pooh is kind of nestled in there. And to get to Winnie the Pooh, you have to go by Splash Mountain. And you could see, actually, people falling down the, the slope, right? And they're, and they're screaming, which sounds terrifying, but maybe they're having fun. I don't know. And I remember her seeing that saying, Daddy, I want to do that. I want to do that. What's that ride? Well, that's Splash Mountain. Are you sure? I said, Yeah, I want to do that. Well, okay. If you want to do it, let's go for it. And that might be bad parenting to take a two-year-old on Splash Mountain. We could talk about that later. But we went for it. We waited in line and we did the thing and it was having flashbacks in my mind of my first encounter. And and she loved it. She loved Splash Mountain. She had a great time. She was able to, we were able to share a seat together so she was safe and everything else. Well, skip ahead two years later. We hadn't been on the ride for a while. Uh, Maybe our passes were out of the weather or whatever. And and she saw it again and decided, yeah, I want to, I want to do that again. Are you sure you want to do that? Yeah, let's go for it. And a lot of change in her two-year-old mind to her four-year-old mind. I could tell that. She couldn't quite remember how terrifying the ride was. I think when she was two, she just didn't really not quite know what was going on. But this time, she knew exactly what was going on. There was a point in that ride where the room turns dark, and it starts to rain and thunder, and, and the fox and the bear are singing these creepy songs. It turns from happy zippity-doo-dah to, like, terrifying what's going to happen. And I never forget, she looked at me, and, and that kind of wonder amazement, that smile that she first had, it kind of turned to a frown, and she was very nervous about what was going on. And then we got to that point where we're coming up the slope, the incline. And, and it's too late. We can't get out now. There's no turning back. And I should mention that the seats were full, and the only seat that was open was the one right in front. And because she's so tall and four years old, she couldn't sit on my lap anymore or right in front of me like I had hoped she would. She had to sit by herself in front on this ride. Are you guys going to call social services on me? This sounds pretty, <laughs> like you're really <laughs> horrified by this. So I remember when we get to the top. And that's that point where you could see the entire park, right, and, and in front of you is just a full view of what you're about to enter into. And I was just holding her tight, and, and, and then we go down, and then the, you're down, and it, it's a great moment. The water splashes in your face, and, and she actually had her hands up the whole time, and she was screaming like crazy, and I couldn't tell because I was screaming too. I'm kind of terrified of that, right? I couldn't tell if her screams were, were joy or terror. And I'll never forget when we got down that point and we make that turn. She turned around and she looked at me very softly, and she said, "Daddy, that was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome." And you know when you go around the turnstile and they take the picture, right? And you do the thing. Um, we didn't want to spend the twenty dollars because that's a ripoff. So we actually snapped a picture on my iPhone of of her coming down there. And I just looked at that. And okay, I'm a pastor. And I'm always looking for where God's moving, and sometimes I miss it or whatever. But I looked at that, and I thought, oh, my goodness. Isn't that just a great representation of our Father's relationship with us? That we have a Father who calls us to moments of great risk and surrender, but he loves us so much that he doesn't say, all right, good luck with that, have fun. But actually, he embraces us. His arms are around us. And he whispers to us along the way, I am with you. I am for you. I've called you to risk. I've called you to surrender. But I don't call you into that in isolation to go on your own. My spirit is in and with you to accomplish that thing that I've called you to. And that because he's with us, we can trust with hands raised and abandonment saying, yes, God, I will go because... You are with me. And I believe quite firmly that God wants to say a couple of things to us today. Remember those two crowds the leper and then the crowd. For some, we're experiencing hurt, we're experiencing brokenness and and maybe even isolation, and that could work itself out in physical illness. Some of us are carrying that. Some of us are emotionally, we, we don't feel well, we don't feel right. And the people that we've maybe called our friends at one point, they're they are not actually there. We feel isolated. I believe God wants to say this to you. Will you even dare to ask that question the same way that the leopard asks? God, are you even willing? There's such faith. There's such risk in that question. And I believe that his answer to us is the same answer we had to the leopard. Yes, I am willing. I will enter in to your pain, to your brokenness, and not a removed way, but I will actually even physically come and touch and be with you to bring healing, to be restoration. Would you dare to even ask that question today? God, are you willing here to say that he is, that he still heals, that he still moves, that he still acts? And then for others like the crowd, thoroughly convinced that God has called some of you in here to things that seem uncomfortable, to things that are comfort adverse, that they're they're full of risk, that he's placed a desire, a passion in you, and you've had this battle in your mind of, well, I don't know if I can really make that work. That seems like really uncomfortable. I got the family now, and this, this thing is happening. That God wants to say that he's with you, that he's called you to that thing, and that he'll go with and before you. So as we begin to worship, I would love it if you would just ask yourself those two questions. Are you like the leper today? Are you feeling outcast? Are you feeling broken? What would it look like for you to even say, God, are you willing? And maybe associate yourself with the crowd where God has called you to moments of risk and surrender. What would it mean to follow with abandonment? That God has already done the heavy lifting but wants to use you in embodying what he's done in this world. Let's worship now. Let's consider those questions together. Right. very specific.